Hello, this is Andy from Gutterblood and you're listening to the Punks and Pubs podcast. We have a new EP out called Hard Gandhi, which you can get on all the usual platforms and we've also done some uh, vinyl as well that we've got available on Bandcamp. Uh, this is a track from the EP and it's called Hard Gandhi. Don't talk. Bottle it all up. Play dumb. Crash. Never ask for help and show no weakness. Keep going, you know you can be this. Welcome to the massacre, you arrogant little parasites. Middle class attitudes running about high as kites, you manipulative fetal troponites. the right to remain silent. Anything you say can be and will be used against you in court. You have the right to talk to a lawyer for advice before we ask you any questions. You have the right to have a lawyer
Red wine, brandy and cocaine, you were a cruel mistress. But I miss you. And if you didn't make me so ugly, I'd embrace you and I'd kiss you. I'm dining out on serotonin and CBD. Think of you, think of me. I'm so numb to the outside world, it's like chloroform to the soul. I'm scunnered and redundant and I drink away for the dole. The average man is so starved of personal positive attention that a simple compliment is enough to steal his heart. And I let you steal my heart. And you took it and traded it for a patsy. Welcome to the massacre, you arrogant little parasites. Middle class attitudes running about high as kites, you manipulative fecal troglodytes. My friends say I dodged a bullet. At least you're not threatening to slit my throat again all hula. At least I'm not sat alone hunting for a drink to get me through it. Because I've considered my life. And I chose not to do it. It's cocaine and caviar. Fentanyl and fish sticks And we both know There's only one way to fix this My name is Liam Bird and this is the Punks and Pubs podcast, but you already knew that. I hope your 2024 has started well. We've been away for dry January, but we're back now for the new year. If you are an avid listener of the podcast, this time last year, I said this would probably be my last year. So 
the the January episode of 2023, I think I said that I was going to be done um, in 2024. Obviously, I've changed my mind. I think I said back then I probably would change my mind. Um, so we're going to go another year. We'll go another round. Why not? Uh, my guest for this episode is a multi-talented author, photographer, and former bass player for the indie avant-garde punks Speedball Baby. Her name is Ali Smith. <laughs> So I spoke to Ali on a crisp February afternoon in a North London pub, and uh, we, we, we got together because Ali has released a new book. It's called The Ballad of Speedball Baby. Some of you may not know who the band Speedball Baby are. Indie darlings, I suppose I would say, of the time who signed to a major and it didn't go as they would have wanted it to go. You may not know who the band is, you may not even know who Ali is, but I can tell you now the conversation we're going to have is a fascinating one and I know all of you will enjoy it. So we touch obviously on on uh, the band Speedball Baby, but we also talk about her time growing up in New York and also her rebellious upbringing and her time on and off the stage at the legendary now gone CBGBs. I do have to give a, a warning. In my chat with Ali, we both talk about our own experiences of sexual assault and, in Ali's case, rape. There are links in the episode description for anyone who might be affected by this subject matter. There are people out there uh, who you can talk to who um, are trained to support people who have gone through what me and Ali have both been through. So um, go check out the links in the episode description of this podcast for that. I know that sounds heavy and it is heavy, but I do appreciate Ali for trusting me to talk openly as, as she does uh, on the subject matter. If you do enjoy this chat, go and support Ali and go pick up her book. You won't regret it. It's a fantastic book. If you if you struggle with reading like myself as someone who is dyslexic, uh, go pick up the audiobook. And me and Ali talk about her experiences of reading her own book for the audio book. Right, let's crack on. This is me with Ali Smith. <laughs> Dangerous talk. your mic yeah. and uh, just have it at a level where you feel comfortable uh how about there that's fine with me yeah okay. um, how do you have your coffee if you have coffee i am an oat milk girl i know that's terribly modern of me but it is the <laughs> truth and uh i need it strong and i almost never like it it's slimy that's my issue with oat milk. It tastes nice, but it's just slimy. <laughs> i didn't mean the oat milk i meant the oh, right. coffee okay, i kind of i insist on having it every day and yet 
I think I hate it. I'm not sure. I think I hate, I don't really like coffee. Yeah. So I have one perfect cup that I make, like a real OCD kind of gal, and then that's it. Are you like measuring how much yeah, coffee's in there? Kind of, yeah. yeah. Special kind, special amount, yeah, all right. <laughs> It's kind of like alcohol, though, isn't it? Like when you when you have your first taste of alcohol, like this tastes of shit. Why is everyone <laughs> liking this? And all of a sudden, like, oh, it's all right. I get it. Yeah. And then you have your combinations. I used to have like before I would play, I would have a shot of whiskey and a beer, and it had to be like in in the proper proportions that yeah. I would take a cup a shot and and a sip of beer. This is so boring. Sorry. Well, the whiskey was still in my mouth, and like it was just a, there was maybe MOCD. I don't know, but it was a, there was an alchemy to it. It, it would work. I find Americans are much better at doing shots and shorts than Brits because mm. I can remember I, I've been had the pleasure of being in America a couple of times, and it's safe. You just have like a shot. In England, we have weights and measures, which is like twenty-five mil and fifty right, mil. Right, right, right. America's just free pour, and yeah. if they like you, you <laughs> get like even you, more. Get... I remember bartending and making people. I didn't know. I didn't drink enough before I bartended, so I would pour for my friends. Basically, a tall glass of vodka with a little bit of, you know, and they, I expect them to be very appreciative, and they would suffer through, and I'd be like, <laughs> we're friends, I've done you a favor, which is yeah, horrible. They're stumbling out the door, I'm like, what <laughs> fucking favor? Um, so the voice that you can hear there is Al Smith. Um, you will know her as a journalist, as a photographer, um, Potterer? Is that the right word? I've seen on Instagram you make little pots or something. Oh, no, that was a total... That was when I first moved to England and had to... Um, felt like I had blown my entire life up, which was only a year ago, a little over a year ago. Yeah. And I was like, I'm, I'm just going to be a crafter. I'm going to craft. And I got... Because... British teacups are beautiful little items that I, I swear you guys don't appreciate the beauty of them. I would go to thrift shops, I would get them, I would drill a hole in the bottom of them, and I would plant um, succulents in them, so cacti. Yep. And, it, and I call them tempest in a teacup, and maybe that's how I felt. A bit of a storm mm -hmm. inside a very delicate little china cup. <laughs> And that's what I was selling. I sold them as soon as I got here. I was like, I guess this is what I do now. <laughs> <laughs> but I've moved on. You moved on from yes, the teacups. Okay, fair enough. And um, I think some people will also know you as the bass player for the band Speedball Baby. I was going to, usually when I try and inter introduce a band, I'll like go the, the punk band or the hardcore band or the ska band or mm. rockabilly mm. band. I don't know how to describe you as a band. <laughs> like it, it's it's the best I came up with was poetry with a bit of angst. But Ooh. I don't know if that's just being patronising. Again, that's my Britishness coming out, apologising <laughs> straight away. Don't, uh, shouldn't you apologise before you said it? Because I should have been primed yeah, with an apology. There you go. Yeah, so now I'm offended, is all I can say. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, that's as good as anything. I think it was really open to interpretation. And I guess we get described often as avant-garde, blues-influenced punk Billy or something. Mm. I would leave the Billy off, the Billy, maybe. The Billy's yeah. a weird one, isn't yeah. it? The reason that we're talking is because you've got a book out called The Ballad of Speedball Baby, mm -hmm. a, a memoir of your time, and it's it's written central around the band, but you, you, you come off onto different subject matters of, of your life. Um, I said before we recorded, I'm up to chapter 14. I'm on the audio book, though, because I'm dyslexic as hell, and I won't right. get past ta chapter 2. So I've heard your voice a lot in yeah, my ear okay. recently. I hope that was all right for you. It was pleasant. I was going to ask you, like, how did you find 
speaking the words that you've probably rewritten and written so many times. How, right. how was that? I fought to do it. I had to audition to play myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, bless them. And uh, no, I, I got the gig. And uh, Devastating I, if you go home and go, they, they didn't like me. I know. I would have been devastated if I had heard anybody else say it and not emphasized what I meant not gotten the jokes and just let things go. And nobody was going to put more into it than me. So I really fought for it. I'm really glad that it worked out, that I could do it. And uh, it was a really wild experience because um, I've never done something like that. Talk for three days straight, believe it or not, even, even though I'm American. Um, I uh, just, it was a physical thing I hadn't done and it was uh, interesting. Yeah, it was fun. So we, we will touch on bits and bobs of, of the... Um of your book, but I, I feel like I should ask, we are in a pub, you, as you said, you've moved over to the UK, mm-hmm. you're, you're originally from New York, spend a lot of your time in New York, now you live in Norfolk, which mm-hmm. is probably famous for mustard and Alan Partridge. And <laughs> that's about it's it. so horribly reductive, <laughs> but yeah, all right. <laughs> um, how have you transitioned from like the New York bars to a good old fashioned Norfolk pub? Well, I mean, to be fair, I haven't really been going out to the New York bars for a while now. You know, nobody I know has really. Uh, I certainly did that. And now I'm doing this. It's how I feel about it. I've always liked a British pub, you know, and um, where I'm at in life, going out at night is not really the priority. I've loved the move. I'm in Norwich. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as Manhattan and New York City are sort of a liberal bubble inside of New York State where all sorts of things happen, I'm getting the gist that maybe Norwich is a bit of a liberal bubble inside of some other things that, you know, I'm getting, I guess that's where I belong in a liberal bubble. It's a lovely place. You've probably got less guns in New York than you have in Norwich because it's just farmers (laughs) and everyone's got a gun. So uh, (laughs) for people who don't know, by the way, Norfolk is like really rural in in England. So uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I used to have a lot of family out in the hinterlands of America that were scared to come to New York because they thought they'd get shot. And I just thought, are you kidding me? You're the ones who are armed. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I mean, yes and no. It's a very dangerous place. It always has been. But strangely, there's an etiquette where, I don't know, like uh, everybody coexists. You mm. cannot not co- learn how to coexist in New York, which is one of its greatest attributes. You know, it's diversity to the core. Um, there's really no time for not learning how to live with everybody. Um, so with that, I don't know, you know, you'd have drug dealers walking old ladies across the street and, you know, everybody sort of is familial in a way. Mm-hmm. Until, it's, until they're not. Um, that's a bit of a glossy version, but I'm more scared going out into America these days, and I'm really glad I did it at a time where it wasn't as heightened, the divisiveness, mm-hmm. the, the idea of civil war, actual civil war. Well, Again. Irony, there's a movie coming out yeah. next year called Civil War. Yeah. And do you know, I was like, I think I can watch it from here. <laughs> I couldn't watch it if I was there because it's too close home. Like I said, we're going to touch on points on the book and I'm going to try and be as coherent as possible with the lineage. My dyslexia sometimes just fucks things it's up. It's not a problem for uh, me. Oh, well, very kind to, to listen. And... <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of the things I do want to pick up early doors was your view on hardcore punk and how that came across in the book. Mm. Um, because it seems to, it, you, your, your first chapter in the book is talking about going to a hardcore show, being put on with a, with a band that probably doesn't fit the band mm-hmm. uh, that you were in. And your, your forward was kind of talking about like the, the dark edges of hardcore. Mm. Why, why was hardcore for you seem to, it's, 
and correct me if I'm wrong, seem to be a love-hate relationship mm. with the scene. Oh, that's so well said. I mean, I think that um, it really fed um, my need for direct release, you know? I mean, it was really just like, you know, you've been in the Malay probably, mm -hmm. you know, the madness of the center of a pit, and, uh, you know, there's not a lot of time to think. <laughs> so um, in terms of immediacy and, like, um, action, I needed a call to action, you know? Mm -hmm. I loved bands that now I would be like, it's not that I don't like the bands, but I don't like the culture so much around them anymore. Um, and I was much more of the mind, like, I can handle it, I can handle anything. Yeah. And that was what was getting me through a lot of my own hard stuff. So Chrome Mags, Murphy's Law, Bad Brains, you know, um, being at those shows, it was extremely male. You know, there was a lot, I mean, like, I think, I don't even remember if it made it into the book, I think it did, but there is a part where one of the skin, at a certain point, skinheads started to take yes. over the scene. And that really changed things in, in New York, you yeah. know? Um, there was a lot of violence, there were murders, um, and it became like the eels of the world were galloping into our little violent utopia. But, um, but then I heard, started hearing things at hardcore shows like, uh, no breeders in the front. <laughs> the front is for men only. More than like angry, I just thought it was pathetic. Like mm. I thought we had all sort of agreed that like the square world was pathetic and, and limited and here we were making more sense. And then you got the same old sexist nonsense bullshit. And it started to be a lot more of that, you know? And so I, I, I guess I just sort of faded out a of it a little bit. I still loved those bands. I did yeah. love listening to them. Yeah. So with, with CBGBs, because that's that's something that you talk a lot about mm. in the book, and obviously going to those famous now, like Sunday matinee shows, mm. and, and like, do you think that's that time is seen through rose-tinted glasses now? Because I think people talk about it like being this place was like a utopia of of, of freedom and <laughs> everyone was welcome. Just don't use a toilet. Like, like it, it seems, definitely don't use no, a toilet. It seems to be like a venue that that is lust for. But I think if you strip back, it was a shithole and there were some shit people in there and horrible things actually happened in that venue. There were some good times, but there was also some really shit times. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how it's viewed, if I'm honest, because I was there. I mm. kind of don't have the, the distanced view of it or I don't know what's going on in younger culture now where they revere it or not or whatever, gloss over it. I do know it's weird to walk into what it is now, which is a fancy clothing store, yes. and see band stickers of your friend's bands behind the plexiglass that they've left on the wall, it's jarring, you know, and it feels a bit stupid and whatever. I mean, that's not my business. It's their business. But um, it was an amazing place, actually, because, like, it was run by an old biker and few other cluster of people that didn't have, like, a strong attachment to music. But I think when people are thinking about CBGBs, often when they're talking about New York music, they're really thinking about the 70s. I don't know. Maybe you're saying that more people know about the New York hardcore matinees, and mm -hmm. that was a really big deal. But there were different chapters of CBs, and CBs was kind of always there throughout all the chapters, you know? Uh, 70s, putting out all the bands that we know they put out. It kind of feels like most people's consciousness of it stops there. Oh, Blondie, Talking Heads, Ramones, came out of there yeah. and then there was the 80s which moved into the hardcore movement and you know when you're 16 and you can go to all ages show and nobody cares like nobody cares that you're outside drinking the 40 ounce you got at the bodega across the street because nobody in New York asked you for a, you know an ID ever mm. 
nobody really cared. So that, that's a double-edged sword. All sorts of bad things can happen and did happen. But also there's an incredible freedom. It's like a really fucked up summer camp. You know, every, you meet everybody every day. And then you just all get together and push each other around. And then you see them next Sunday, you know. Yeah. And then there was the 90s, which was my scene. And we played CBs all the time. And it was incredible playing CBs. You know, you could not, it was filthy and disgusting. And you could not help but know that you were part of a piece of history that you're proud to be a part of you know hmm. people the crowd wrapped around the stage it was all encompassing there wasn't really a big division between the the crowd and the band um that was kind of the point you know so yeah i think it was as good as if people are saying it was good i think it was that good do you wish more was done to try and save it and preserve it just for musical history or do you think, just let it go, it's fine? Nah, it's, it's a time, you know, yeah. when Healy Crystal died and then I guess it's a, in Las Vegas as a museum now. It's fine, whatever people want to do, I don't care. I mean, I, I don't care about it. It mm. doesn't mean anything to me. You had to have had a moment, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. If you don't mind, we, we're going to talk a little bit about your upbringing because you, sure. you talk about it in your book and it's kind of interesting the, the dynamics between your dad and your mum. Mm. And um, for people who, who haven't read or are going to read, you talk about how your dad seemed to be anti-pop culture, was mm. very much anti-television, but your mum found joy and comfort in it. I'm interested in like that sliding door moment. Like if your dad was more well warm to the TV and pop culture, do you think you would have still had that rebellious streak of being told... You, you can't do this. I mean, it's interesting because he was that, but he was also like a malcontent to the core. You know, he was a tenants' rights activist to the point and degree to which his partner in the tenants' rights organization was beheaded and dismembered and left in garbage bags. Um, so he was not afraid to stand out, push back, speak up. Yeah. And, you know, he and I don't really get along anymore, but I am thankful for those things being generated in me wherever they came from. Yeah. I'm not afraid to be different, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, probably had I had a better home life, I might not have written a book. <laughs> That's all right. You know, it all ends up, uh, at least there's a moment now where I feel like I can be seen for what happened, mm -hmm. you know, to put it in the most reductive terms, but... And did you, I don't know if your parents are still around, did you speak to them before you powered the book? Did you make them aware? Right, my dad is not somebody I could talk to about that, yeah. so I kind of just wanted to keep it out of his world. Mm -hmm. um, my mom doesn't really want to know because okay. it's not her style, yeah. and that's legit. She's um, a lovely, loving, funny, smart woman, but she doesn't really like digging into the dirty deep. And um, that's my choice, mm -hmm. you know, and that's how I like to live. I always feel like if I've got a limitation, I would like to think that I at least try to push past it. So that's my style. It's not comfortable for her. Do you remember music being played in the house that you didn't choose? So your dad played music or your mum played music? Oh, for sure. Oh, what, for sure. What, what kind of music was being played? Well, my dad was a classical musician. So he played with the Metropolitan Opera. He played with Stokowski. He played bass trombone. And he actually um, snuck me onto the stage of the Metropolitan Opera House once during a performance so that I could feel what it felt like to be in the music. And he really, that was quite a, a moment, you know? I mean, the swelling of music on the floorboards, like the, the camaraderie of people making music together. I think I got it in a different way. And my mom had all the albums that you would have in those days uh godspell hair you know um the carpenters and um i spent a lot of time just like tying belts around my head and dressing like a hippie as a very small child to 
to learn all the words, very controversial words, the soundtrack of hair, you know, and like I spent a lot of time sort of alone, dancing, singing, creating. They wouldn't dose me. They wouldn't dose me. Oh, let's go get a package. that come through your book unfortunately is the theme of violence mm. that there's a lot of violence um, happening both directed at yourself your bandmates um, there, there's and I, I want to ask this question focusing on you said you were a young woman or a young girl going to shows mm-hmm. how how was that kind of because you say you're 15 14 going to shows how, how old were you when you were going to shows 15, 16. 15, 16. Okay, yeah. so you're still finding yourself as a woman, uh, as a young girl. Yeah. When was the first time that you realized, oh, that this scene isn't all about unity, isn't about equality. There are toxic yeah. masculinity aspects to this. Right. Okay, so there was no term toxic masculinity. There was no conversation to be had with anybody about appropriate behavior or um, mansplaining or, you know, safe spaces. Uh, it just wasn't that language. Yeah. And thank God there's that language now. And that we're all a little bit more, I'm not going to say woke, we're all awake. And that's the point, you know. But, um but they're, so, so I think that for me at least, and I think it was probably similar for a lot of women, you just put up with a ton of shit. And um, mostly when bad things happen, I mean, I, I don't know that many women that weren't somehow sexually assaulted in their life. And when bad things happen, you kind of just got on with it, you know? And uh, you, felt, you internalized how bad you felt about it. But showing up at a show, participating meant you were going to live up to a standard that was super male, really. You know, you were going to prove you could take it, or at least I was. I was going to prove I could take it. I wasn't going to be scared. I was going to go out on the road and go all over the world in this van without seatbelts. And, you know, like, um, you know, there are some stories that I left out of the book that are really... I, I look back and I'm like, that was such a different time. I don't know that you'd get away with this now. The things people would say or like confront me uh, in an alleyway or, you know, men, I don't know, you know, they were uncomfortable with the power I had on stage, I think, sometimes and wanted to take it back from me. So they would say horrible things. And I've never been a wilting flower. You know, I, I did feel like I could take care of myself. Maybe that's coming from New York, delusional or not having experienced like five murders up close by the time I was in my mid-twenties, you just kind of got on with it. And that's, the destruction of that is, <laughs> now we're all understanding what it is to just get on with it when you've been deeply uh, hurt. So was it a case of like, I'm going to a punk show, I know I might get groped, or I, might, I know I might, I might get called something, and it's just part of the scene? No, I never liked it. Like, I was pissed about it. I didn't assume it would happen, but it happened over and over. I didn't get groped in the pit. To be, I don't know why. Yeah. But, like, I know that women did. Um, I think what I was doing was, like, squashing the part of me that was allowed to care and just be like, I can handle it, which leaves 
all the rest of the women behind. If one woman can handle it, whether or not I could is an argument. You know, I was, you know, when I was date raped, which was my first sexual experience, um, I have, that has been the work of my life to correct for that terrible introduction to the world of my sexuality, you know? It's never going to not be the work of my life. And um, that's hot garbage. Like, that, sh that shame didn't belong to me. But I just thought I had to handle it. So now you have, like, culturally speaking, so we have sex education, that television show, you know, where the women are talking about it. And, like, I don't actually think kids are having that much sex. I could be wrong. I might be off, out to lunch. But we weren't. But um, there's this culture where, you know, we're finally understanding that those things are unacceptable. Yeah. At the time, there was no culture for that. You just got on with it, and you were usually private about your pain. Well, you, you kind of touched on the fact that you were raped, and I was going to ask you about it later on, but seeing you've brought it up, I'll speak about it now. Yeah. I mean, chapter one is like a hardcore song. It punches you in the face fucking hard. And in that, in that chapter, you talk about essentially having a gun in your face, and that leads you to a, a story of being raped as a young child. Mm -hmm. Um, and I can only imagine like how putting it down on words must make it even more real than even if you've spoken about it a lot of time because mm. you are putting that out to the world. You, mm -hmm. It's not no longer yourself. It's no longer just you and your friends. Yeah. It's now everyone. Yeah. How how did you go through that? And did you decide that? How did you decide that you were going to write in the way that you wrote it? Well, I rewrote it a lot, and I've. I was hemming and hawing about, do I want that? And the older I get, and the more I care about other people, the more I feel it's deeply important to not be ashamed about anything that's ever happened to you. I don't, own, I don't want to own that anymore. And so this was almost like uh, ripping the Band-Aid off, like, well, it's out there now, you know? And I'm not particularly secret, but in a strange way, I'm a bit private. And before it was coming out, I did have panic attacks, like, what have I done? And my son's going to read it, and da-da-da. And it always circled back to, like, yeah, he's going to read about real life. And maybe if something happens to him or somebody he knows, it won't be such a hidden, you know singularity it's about the human condition and how are we going to treat each other and I feel like this was an opportunity for me to be you know I'll lead I'll raise my hand first you know and to be honest a lot of people not just women but a lot of people now come to me and talk to me about their experiences which I consider an honor it's not easy but fuck it man so many people in that scene I mean we were like big hearted sensitive people who got hurt I mean, that's, yeah, I don't want to make it into, you know, a therapy session, but, like, there is truth to that. Artists yeah. are very sensitive people, you know, and, like, um, and everybody gets hurt at some point. So now to be at the place where you can kind of just be real about that and, you know, some of the, some hard guys from the scene are, are emailing me in tears about their feelings. Like, <laughs> I mean, I saw um, Stiff Little Fingers play not so long ago. I took my son in London. It was great. And, um... And the singer stopped and he was like, oh, I just want to say, you know, if you're feeling depressed, I used to be really depressing, you know, talk to somebody and da da da. It was so beautiful. It was just like, all right, fuck it. We're all fucked up. Come on, let's <laughs> stop posing about it. Stop being worried. Yeah. I felt very much that's valuable. 
hundred percent. And something that I, I I try and do in this podcast is I try and be as honest as I can and vulnerable. And I've spoken about my clinical depression at times. I've spoken about um, being suicidal. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll openly, I don't feel I've spoken about this, but I myself was also sexually assaulted as a child. And yeah. through when I was reading, listening to your book, the question that kept coming up to me was the question that I asked myself and I did. Throughout the time when, when I was being assaulted, I kept going back mm. to that house because I had nowhere mm. else to go to. Mm. And you spoke about how you went back to the person who raped you. And as I got older, I, I tried to block it out, mm. but I couldn't because mm. I, I ended up hating myself feeling like I went back. And now, obviously, through therapy, I know it's never my fault. I, I had no option. Totally. I had to go back. Totally. I took the decision after talking to people that I wanted to try and get some justice. Yeah. So I went to the police and I historically yeah. put press charges against yeah. this person. Yeah. I didn't get my justice at all. I'm interested to know if you thought about mm. going back and seeking justice. So interesting. Okay, so I don't know if this is the flavor of the podcast you want, but I'm grateful for it and I'm deeply grateful for what you just shared with me. Like, fuck it, man. Like, mm. I feel for you. I feel you. You yeah. I, I, again, no. I'm not saying that to to try and draw a story from you. No, I, no. I think the fact that you were so honest in your book, as a podcast, I've always tried to be honest Good. with the audience and tell people actually life is yeah. shit. Yeah. You're not the only one. Yeah. This happens. Yeah. Yeah. And and like speaking about it will empower you and 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 disempower the person who took essentially totally. a part of your life away from you. Sure, absolutely. Um, all of it, yes. I did write about how going back, because I think you put yourself on trial like the world would, the, the limited, narrow, fickle, sexist world would put you on trial and, and essentially say, well, why'd you go back if it was so bad? And human psychology is deeply f- deep and flawed or whatever, you know, it's complicated. Um, children's emotions are complicated it's all bullshit to try to to turn it into something like that so I I was I did myself a favor by saying I was embarrassed to say I went back because I thought people would read it and then be like what the hell is she talking about that's not right so I tried to describe what it felt like to be that person and I think I thought if I could fix it and it was just like the start of a complicated romance. Like every fucking 80s movie told me like date rapey advances are sort of like the start of a fantastic relationship, not horrible things. Like my favorite, Bill Murray in Meatballs. I watched it recently and I had to keep telling my son, that is not okay. He's like, I know it's not okay. You know, but it's like unwanted couch wrestling. You know, it's like, so we'd been brainwashed really. And so I'm done. I'm done with the brainwashing, you know? The collective unconscious is moving away from this stupid fucking rote thing about like victims and and uh, did you ask for it and all this stuff. As far as retribution, it's complicated because I mm, that is so complicated. I I actually hired a private detective to find the guy, and she did it for free because she obviously understood how that would feel and sent me the address. P.O. Box. So it is. He seems to have disappeared into the world of P.O. Box. And um, and I sat down to write, and I just thought, the problem is he stole my humanity from me, and I don't know if I'm still asking him for my humanity back. I don't know what to ask him because I don't think he will ever see me as a human being. So the letter I sent was sort of about that. 
it, like um, what he had stolen from me. It wasn't a, an angry letter. It was about how he had demoralized himself by being subhuman in his behavior and treating me like a nothing. I, didn't, I, I don't know if it meant anything. He might have thought, that psychopath is still thinking about this. And that's the part that hurts the most. So I have to stop caring about that. I didn't do anything legal. It was, I think it would be un quote-unquote provable. So now I'm just concerned with other people and my connection with them by being honest. Yeah. Um, we'll move away from, from obviously that, right. that deep stuff, but anyone who is interested or, or is seeking help will put some um, links in the Fantastic. podcast so people can, can get that help if they want it. Um, before we actually start talking about the band that you were in, Speedball Baby, <laughs> uh, why the bass? You know, the bass is amazing. Like, Paul Simonon was, I just thought he was beautiful, you know, not just because of his beautiful cheekbones, but, like, there's a vibe to the bass. It's yep. just, like, you can't do without it unless you're in, like, a few select bands. It is everything until it, it, you notice it. You don't notice it till it's gone. You're not showing off all the time. Blah, 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 blah. It suited my personality at the time. Plus, it was there. Matt had it, you know. But Matt also had, like, all the other instruments, too. And uh, I did learn to play drums and bass and da-da-da-da. But bass felt good for me. Yeah. It was just, like, the right vibe. And you spoke about how you positioned the bass, like, down to your knees. And kind of yeah. like a... Mike Dirt instantly came to mind from Green Day. He has yeah. his down by his fucking ankles. I mean, was there anyone you were mimicking when you were on stage? Did you, did you have, like, idols who you wanted to look like? I mean, it was really Paul Simonon and Dee Dee Ramone, yeah. you know? Um, the fact is I couldn't play the bass like that, so I always ended up hiking it up a <laughs> no, little higher. Nor could Dee Dee Ramone. <laughs> <laughs> I had a few more notes to play than yeah. Dee so I had to, like, tweak it. But um, I ended up sort of, like, this hybrid thing where I would sort of bounce on my hip, which now is going to be, like, real bad back problems um, but it was still low enough to be respectable yeah yeah. you cannot hike that base up that is a terrible <laughs> terrible thing to do just yeah. up here like the strokes. oh my god kill um, me <laughs> again you also spoke about being in a couple of bands before Speedball Baby yeah. I think one was a ska band or yeah. a ska punk band yeah but you didn't seem that infused by it what What was it about those you just like fuck it I just need to do something like I'll, I'll play I'll play whatever I didn't know what I was doing I was singing yeah so it was all up to me to deliver the message and I didn't know what the fuck was going on well it wasn't that I didn't know what I was doing I didn't know what it was supposed to be you know like I think I wanted to be like Debbie Harry polystyrene um, Joe Strummer those are who in my head I was being maybe Pauline Black but I was never going to be as cool as Pauline Black so I mostly just leapt around you know and like um, and it just wasn't great yeah. it was alright but it wasn't me so I moved over and I let somebody else do it I'm addictive I'm addictive I'm addictive I'm up there beating my head against a goddamn wall what are you doing what the fuck are you doing I'm up there busting my balls what are you doing Come down, the poor on the ground. You're gonna want more. You're gonna want more. Yeah. Sick of busting my head against the wall for you. So like you joined Speedball Baby and I, I spoke about earlier on like trying to pigeonhole your band as sounds was very yeah. difficult. 
I can only I can only guess the amount of like as as we kind of touched on earlier on like being put onto shows with hardcore bands, punk bands, yeah. ska bands, yeah. unique. Can we move out there. Yeah, yeah, we can. No, move, yeah. Sorry, That's I can't right, hear yeah. anymore. That's right. <laughs> the bar's got busy. So, sorry. Uh, so I take that mic from you. Okay. Thank you so much. So yeah, I was asking you about playing shows with yeah. other artists and uh, if your background in punk kind of helps you either not give a fuck <laughs> or just kind of deal with the situation in hand. Do you know, I would much rather play with um, a weird like cowboy hat wearing play for that kind of audience mm. that doesn't know what we're trying to do and is kind of mildly pissed off that we're there. And then you can sort of either win them over or just at least make something interesting happen and then run away. Then the Lemonheads thing was so boring because it was just boring. You know, I mean, I, I'm not trying to be mean about it. I think Evan Dando's a great singer and they had some good songs and I was, it's lovely that they wanted to do it and it's to their credit. They were like, here's a weird ass band that our crowd won't have any use for. Let's take them. <laughs> and that's, you know, wonderful. Yeah. Um, but that kind of thing, like college crowds that aren't there for you, it's a certain kind of disinterest that's boring. You're not going to win them over by breaking something or, you know, turning yourself inside out. You're just going to kind of annoy them and then you'll go off. And <laughs> I remember playing one gig with them and they're always in gymnasiums, you know, which is also just like, fuck me. And, uh, and all of a sudden I saw in the distance of the gymnasium during our set, like um, people dressed in huge sumo outfits wrestling and like bouncing over this, bouncing against each other. And I just thought, this is kind of a waste of my time. <laughs> Do you know? Like, nothing's happening. Can, can you listen to Mrs. Robinson without just crying inside? <laughs> no, that's okay? all right. I don't listen to Mrs. Robinson, if I'm honest, but, um, I, but I appreciate that it's good. <laughs> And it's you, Mrs. Robinson Jesus loves you more than you will know Whoa, whoa, whoa God bless you, please, Mrs. Robinson Heaven holds a place for those who pray Hey, hey Again, I want to I want to come back to the toxic masculinity aspect of of being a woman in in a band at the time because I've interviewed um, <laughs> I nearly said that like I, I should get a pat on the back I was like mm. I've interviewed women before oh god I oh, know what a wonderful man you Go are for me. oh good for you <laughs> but, but, they, but they talk about like how stewards not stewards I'm, I'm thinking of my work Dorman will stop women going in and going you're not you're not part of the band what are oh you doing oh god i never so, had that happen. oh really thank god i never had that i think i would have lost my shit so yeah i have heard of like some stories of the women just thinking that they're not part of the band that they're, they're just either groupies or 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 just yeah regular joes trying to get in through the stage door that never happened then no that never happened i have no idea why because hmm. i'm shocked and dismayed that that happened and i'm sure that's absolutely true <laughs> um no mine was more about like uh, after the show in the dressing room or closet or whatever they gave you to dress in, you know, or change in, um, the flavor of a lot of the guys would be 
either they had a band and they wanted to play with us so they would be kissing Matt's ass or they were like intrigued by Ron who was the madman so they'd be sort of dancing around him and trying to connect and then when they got to me they didn't always know what to do like it was either do I want to sleep with her am I going to try and do that and if I'm going to try and do that that means I got to knock her off her high horse because I've just been looking literally up at her on a stage right now and I've got to readdress the balance so there was a lot of like tired conversations you know that were <laughs> I could tell that I was like they're trying to take me down a peg and I didn't really stick around long for those but it was constant if I'm honest and yeah. it was tiresome you spoke about your bandmates there. My what? Your bandmates. Yeah. You just spoke about them. So Matt, Ron, and Martin. Yeah. You speak about, in the book, how you've said it on here, how you and Matt are still great friends. Yeah. Um, and the dynamic between yourself and Ron, who in the book is going through withdrawal symptoms. You spoke about, in the book, how in the wedding, you kind of all came to, to decide, oh, we're going to try and do something as a band. Well, I wasn't at the wedding. Oh, Matt you not? Okay. Ron. Yeah, yeah. Um, but how how did it go from let's just jam to oh no this is actually something like right. th- let's quit our jobs and and have a crack oh at god, this oh god no yeah well first <laughs> of all let me just say you said wedding and we were just talking about Evan Dando we played Evan Dando's wedding mm-hmm. in New York at the Boat House and it was I think it was like I think I came out of the bathroom and I think it was Anita Pallenberg she was like great band I was like you know like oh okay thanks like you know. It was a pretty intense scene. It was very interesting. Um, And again, to his credit, he's like, you know who my wedding band's going to (laughs) be? But I think it was us and members of Dinosaur Jr. and a couple of other people. And it was fun, you know. Um, uh, But there was absolutely no time that we said, now it's time to quit our jobs. Because um, it sort of happened organically where Matt and Ron... So Ron was very much in the throes of addiction, um, often on as as the nature of addiction, um, and had come down from Boston. He had gotten married, and that's where Matt met him at his, at Ron's wedding, and his wife was really into witchcraft. So they were near Salem, Massachusetts, which is where everything witchy happens, Salem witch trials, all that. And they were pretty bored with that. And so, um, you know, I think that in Ron's sort of staccato poetry, you know, he's very, uh, I guess I would say, angular, impulsive, smart as shit. You know, like everything goes into Ron's head from the world and you don't know how it gets the way it comes out, but it's very interesting the way he's put it together. So that's really remarkable to watch in real time. And um, Matt was excited by it, you know? He was in a really great band called Matter Rose, but it was a very dream poppy, very, I don't know if it's dream pop, but it was very lullaby um, band. And he is uh, much more into like Tom Verlaine and like sort of angular guitar. And um, so he asked him to come down from Boston. They did. And they just started creating. And I like to say that like they lived in the night together. Mm-hmm. You know, they would go out at night and Ron would disappear in the streets at night and they'd come back to the studio at night. And, you know, Matt and I had a slightly lighter tone to our relationship. So when I would like cross by Ron, it'd be like, oh, that guy's a lot, right? And Matt <laughs> would be like, yeah, he's a lot. Yeah. And, uh, but I didn't dislike him. I just knew it was a lot. And um, they started playing these happenings, you know, just sort of like with whoever. Sort of, uh, they didn't know what it was supposed to be. It was mostly built around Ron's poetry. And when Ron stopped spewing poetry, it was over, kind of. And um, eventually, I think after Matt saw me in the other band, and I was just throwing myself at 
everywhere, you know, and he's like, well, she's up for it, you know, and, and I'd already gotten to know him and we just, you know, play every instrument together and had a ball together. And he said, Al, just, do you want to just try some bass? And I said, um, I don't know how to play the bass. <laughs> and he said, ah, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, he's like, it'll be what we always do. No rules. We just do it, you know. And that was really encouraging. So I showed up for our first show and I still didn't know what we were supposed to be doing. It was very experimental. Um, Ron was all over the place, tipping off the stage, attacking the crowd. But it was kind of wonderful also. And then I just did it again and again and again and again. And it became a little unit. And then we found Martin. We had other drummers before and we had another drummer after, Andy Action from Two Skinny Jays. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, but I felt like that was the the heart and, and the core of the band. And, and why do you think you could spend hours in a bus and not kill them? What was the thing that that <laughs> kind of made you stop, you stop you from doing that? First of all, just so you know, even if you get signed to a major label, it was a van. A van, sorry. I <laughs> no, say bus, but no, I'm no. in a van. Yeah, You're yeah. not the only person who said bus, and I, I wonder what the assumption is, and it's interesting. I love that. Yeah. Um, it was definitely a shitty van. Um, <clears throat> maybe a less shitty van than we had before. Um, sometimes I definitely wanted to kill him. Um, I went through a phase of knitting. <laughs> that sounds so horribly like gendered, but crochet your pain away. Is crochet that, yeah. that pain away. Yeah. Crochet it away. Um, but it was more that like when I was doing it, everybody knew to fucking leave me alone. <laughs> and maybe it's because I had two sharp sticks in my hands. I don't know. Hands, yeah, yeah. But they kind of were like, oh, so <laughs> so confrontational by doing this very <laughs> thing. But no, sometimes sometimes you get in the van in the morning and you're like, you are fucking asshole. I don't want to go another. You don't. I didn't say it. I mean, I didn't really say it. There were a few times I was that honest about that feeling. I mostly fumed and tried to get away or, you know, ridiculed or something mm. privately with Matt. Matt kept me saying that's how it was. If I was really upset, Matt would be like, let's go see this. Yeah. You know, world's ball biggest ball of twine or, you know. You just start knitting the twine. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you van put out two EPs and then you signed to, as we've kind of hinted at, MCA who was your major label and from the book it just seems like it went shit like they didn't look after you they kept getting your name fucked up yeah but the thing that i found interesting what i got from it was like it seems like it was at points putting you in real danger of not being looked after properly because i think labels have a responsibility to their band right and not putting them in dangerous situations mm. whereabouts it could get sketchy and I, I just, I, yeah, I was kind of getting your viewpoint on that. I, I'm very aware, as I say, that legality. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start it. Let's preface that by we were always putting ourselves in potential okay, harm. So um, I just think, so it was the 90s, right? Yep. Everybody in a big major label wanted to find the next Nirvana, and they were in a hot, white hot scramble to find that. Um, they did not know how to do it because traditionally they don't have their finger on the pulse of what's going on in the underground music scene. Um, so they would gobble up the small labels that did. And uh, we had put out with PCP Records, Sympathy for the Record Industry, um, In the Red Records, fantastic labels, really like pioneers and visionaries of uh, figuring out what's going on in music. And um, 
And then we hooked up with Fort Apache Records, also doing great work. Paul Coldery and Sean Slade in Boston, they were doing not only the Lemonheads, they were doing Pixies, Radiohead, they did the whole album, Live Through This. So they were like defining the sound of the 90s. And they liked us. Mm. And so um, they sort of took us under their wing. And by proxy, we were signed to MCA because MCA bought up, or you know, not bought up, but worked through yeah. Fort Apache. Um, I think that there are lots of dangers in that kind of disassociation. Um, it's demoralizing, and a lot of bands don't survive it. They blow a lot of smoke up your ass, you know, especially if they're based in L.A. You know, L.A. is a very silly place. You know, also kind of fantastic to dip in and get the fuck out, but it's the opposite of New York, really, not just distance and coast-wise. But um, I think it's a little bit sad how disposable people can be treated in any creative industry um, considering they're creating all the content you know and there was a lot of money in those days in the 90s in the in the entertainment business maybe more than there is now Um, I know that when we got to LA they took us out for lunches at places we didn't need to go and it's all very nice but you know um, a lot of money being thrown around but then once you get out to do the work which is really especially coming from New York from the Lower East Side artistic scene it was like do the work it's so hard to live here um, it's a very small area very concentrated amount of people just being creative you know living in these difficult neighborhoods you know just do the work hmm. that's what matters and uh that seemed almost beside the point, you know. You're the one out on the road doing the work, and they can't get the promotion right. They can't get your band name right. It's humiliating, and in terms of danger, there's a danger to you, for sure, in terms of, like, your unity and your sanity. But also, um, yeah, they didn't know where they were sending us. Sending us to play with a skinhead band in Pennsylvania that it didn't all work out peachy keen, you know, like... We can handle it, but like they could have done the leg work. We're coming up to the hour. Are you okay? Or, or I'm okay. I will have to pee, but <laughs> that's your choice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a toilet I will right use there. Use the bathroom. That's okay. okay. I'll, I'll leave the mic though. Uh, we don't need that. Uh, do you want to? Are you telling me you need to go now? Not quite. Okay, no problem. You'll know. I can <laughs> just warm warmness down my leg. <laughs> uh, so there's there's that old punk trope of never sign to a major. Mm. Did that ever like trickle into your mind and going? Like that ethos that every punk should have of never make any money, ever. I mean, I think it was always there. Yeah. You know, maybe in other, maybe more in an idea of what will other people think or whatever. Um, but we continued to record the same way we always did. Matt's studio, sometimes at Fort Apache with people we trusted. Um, we stood behind everything we did. We're still playing like a paint can full of coins for a drum part for this so there was never a moment there was never a hair's breadth for whatever reason where they suggested I dress sexier or we tone something down there were some opinions that came up 
but they weren't, they were mostly annoying. And um, yeah, I mean, of course, you always wonder what you're getting into. And on the other side of that, like Matt had already been down the major label, like Matt Rose was a darling of MTV and the, they were well-deserving darling, they're a great band. Um, but he'd been through it, he had, he'd, had, he'd been called the cheekbones of Matter Rose, he'd had all this smoke blown up his ass, you know, and he just wanted to make stuff he was proud of. And I'll admit, I wish we could have made more videos, because I love videos. And that's sort of now what you'd find on MTV, uh, not MTV, MTV, YouTube, you know. So like, I think it's more about completing the creative circle and leaving stuff, you know? I mean, there's the ephemeral nature of creation, which is valuable, but there's also like, you working your ass off. We never quit our jobs, ever. We made a little bit of money, and we got a payday for leaving MCA, mm -hmm. but we never made a scads of cash, so we're like, now's the time we quit our jobs. So, you know, there is something nice about thinking it will be out in the world and people can access it. But mostly you have to hand deliver that shit to people show by show. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we kind of touched on some of the, the horrors that you faced or the difficulties or the, the violence. But one thing that comes across is that, you, and again, tell me if I'm wrong, you, you seem to have used the camera to protect yourself from the horrors that were actually happening in front mm. of you. So one comes to mind is Ron in a bathtub basically coming down after the traumatic experience you just had, as you said in, in, in the show that's in Philly. Where did, that, where did your love of camera come from? And were you aware at the time that you were using your camera as a, like a protective screen from reality? Um, such a great, great question. Um, in that instance, Ron was detoxing because he had lost his medication. Um, and... Uh, you're absolutely right that I was using the filter of the camera between me. I did the same thing at my grandmother's funeral. I couldn't look at her in the coffin until I was looking through a lens. Um, you know, it's weird to keep on hearkening back to my dad because we don't get along anymore, but um, I guess he was really uh, documenting every moment. Maybe that's how I learned to make sense of things, you know? I don't know if that's exactly why. There's also the myth-making of uh, photography like Penny Smith with The Clash. You know, like um, you, you're framing the world, you're containing the world, you're looking at a small amount of it, you're controlling it, and you're making it look the way that you would like it to look. Combined with music, you know, myth-making, Paul Simonon smashing his bass at, at the Palladium, mm -hmm. you know. Um, there's a lot of uh, sort of use of that kind of stuff in terms of uh, feeling safe in the world. You know what I mean? Um, does that make any sense? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and at what point did you decide with the band, I'm done with this, like, hmm. I'm done with music and yeah. this lifestyle? Um, well, you know, there were a lot of things going on. We were touring a lot. It was very male. I came up with this idea to do a photography book about women who had inspired me uh, even though and had succeeded in their careers even though they had been off the beaten path because I wanted evidence that the way I was feeling wasn't uh, so isolated. I was feeling very alone in my view of the world, especially with these men I'm talking about coming backstage and trying to take me down a peg. And so I reached out to a lot of women uh, that were doing things I was excited about. Janine Garofalo, Anne Magnuson, Lydia Lunch, Alice Walker, all these very interesting women. And, I, and it became my first book of photography, Laws of the Bandit Queens. 
and I asked them each for a law by which she tries to live. And it went, I photographed them and did that. And I was kind of constructing an alternative uh, narrative for myself, you know, philosophy, life philosophy, that made more sense to me than what was in front of me, that I felt very on the outside of. And once I did that, it kind of, sorry, once I did that, it kind of um, sent me in a direction where I wanted more of that. I wanted more... Um, affirmation, connection in that way. So I was feeling a little bit on the outs of that, you know. Um, then I got into a relationship and he had a child that I really bonded with. And I'm always fearful that sounds like, and then I had a kid and I knew I was meant to be a mom the whole time. It wasn't that. It was that, you know, she was a wonderful person. Nurturing her brought a lot out of me. She had gone through some similar things, family-wise and everything, and I recognized those things in her, and we're still close. So um, those combination of things, I was kind of ready to figure out what the next chapter was. As I said, you, you've, you are a very successful photographer. I'll put a link on so people can see some of your work. It's a great picture. I don't know who the woman is, but she's taking a piss in the urinal, and I think it look, she's in like stilettos, and she looks fantastic. That's Miriam Shore. Okay. She is the creator, co-creator, and star of Hedwig and the Angry Inch, uh, the movie. She is why I wrote this book because she is oh. a friend of mine, and she kept telling me, "You got to write this down. All these stories, you got to write them down." <laughs> so, uh, but I photographed that for a magazine. Yeah. But so, so yeah, you've, you've become. Um, lauded in, in, in the work and the photography that you are now but how difficult was that transition from becoming going from the lifestyle of constantly in the van moving place to place mm -hmm. to, to now working solo like you're not you don't have people around you in the way that you probably would in the band mm. you're working very individually on your own you, you'll have people you're taking photos with mm. but you're the one who's doing the shots you're deciding how things are going to go yeah. I mean how, how was that transition well uh, the good part is it's all up to you, and the bad part is it's all up to you. Um, but also, I think I've transitioned some of those skills, you know, like uh, I've got to go in and meet Billy Corgan, Rachel Maddow, uh, or a mom in prison, or, you know, any uh, or somebody who's uh, living on the streets who's collecting cans, and the goal is the same, make a connection. Um, and come away with something that, in my mind, we created together. And that is the same thing we were doing in music. Show up, make a connection. Doesn't have to be good or bad, it has to be something. And you've walked away with something that you created in that moment together. It's kind of the same animal. It's just a different route to getting to like what I call the core of the human condition, you know? So. We'll wrap up now. Um, okay. And uh, um, I like to try and ask this question to all my guests of, if time and money wasn't an issue, who are you calling up to have a beer with? Ooh, time and money. Whew. Distance oh as well. Oh, Distance goodness. Fascinating. Um, I do kind of have to pee right now, but it's right at the end of the interview, so <laughs> should I hold it? Um, I feel this is a cop-out, and I'll probably think of something on the way back, but I feel like I've gotten to have a beer with most of the people that I want to, including, like, Exine Cervenka, who's the band mm -hmm. X, who I just like, she gave me so much as a young woman. And now she's written the foreword to my book. Yep. She's read the foreword to my book. We're friends. Uh, you know, she's proven to me that you can be an icon, a legend, and still be a lovely person. 
who's sort of just a, like a working artist. That's been a real gift. But um, so I kind of feel like I've gotten that, which is such a, when I'm thinking about it now, such a great feeling. Um, I don't know. Am I supposed to say Obama? Like, come back Obama? No, 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 no. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna that's, 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 phone you yeah. in. I'm gonna phone you from okay. the phone from the train. Yeah. On the way home. And then just tell with me. With my person. I'll have to, I'll have right to now it's my kid. Right now it's my kid, even though Aww. he can't drink yet. Yeah. Sorry, but it's true. I, mean, I really enjoy his company. He can drink. I mean, he technically can, he can. but but I would be angry with <laughs> him for it. <laughs> He's Ali. a lovely guy. Ali, thank you so much for your time. Oh I'm gonna God. let you have a piss or Wait. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, I'm not. I'm not going to start asking that question. Um, that was um, the most punk end to any interview I've ever done. Thank you so much for letting me have pleasure. a piss. Thank you so much. Thank you, Liam. It's come to my attention that some of our parishioners have been spotted out on I-89. Thank you so much to Ali for coming all the way from Norfolk to come hang out with me. If you're interested in reading or listening to Ali's book, The Ballad of Speedball Baby, you can do so by getting off your ass and uh, going to your local bookstore and asking for it, or you can be lazy and click the link in the episode description. Also in there, you will find links to some of Ali's photography. Thank you also to Gutterblood for sponsoring this episode. You would have heard them at the start of the podcast. Go support them by picking up their new EP, Hard Candy, on a physical format or digital. Again, all links are in the episode description. If you want to sponsor an episode of the podcast just like Gutter Blood, you can do so for free. We never charge for sponsoring. Then do that by emailing punksandpubs at gmail.com. Not done this bit in a long time. Go rate and review the podcast. Think of it as a way of giving back to the podcast that has been with you in nearly five years and has never tried to make money off you in any way because like good punk rock soldiers we never want to be wealthy (laughs) right that's it Uh, know that you're loved and if you're going to a punk show and you see someone fall down you pick them right back up again bye bye Yeah.